This is Cthonia, the world of the dark feminine. Hello, and welcome to Cthonia, the podcast dealing with the dark feminine. I'm your host, Breach Burke. Today we are going to do something a little bit different in the podcasting, namely in the sense that we are going to be talking about a male deity rather than a female one this week. Uh, This week, and actually in the next podcast as well, we're going to be looking at the god Dionysus. Now Dionysus is also known as Bacchus in the Roman um, uh, tradition, and He's also, he's got, there's many other names that he is known by as well that have been seen. Zegrus is another one. And he's associated with the idea of zoe, or indestructible life. Uh, There is a ton of material on Dionysus. So let me talk a little bit about that first, because there is going to be so much that there is naturally going to be something, even over two podcasts, that I'm going to miss. So what we want to talk about here, I'm, I'm basically dividing... Dionysus into the into the god who is described by Homer, the guy who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, as far as we know, um, and and how Dionysus is portrayed in what are known as the Homeric hymns. Which again, the Homeric hymns are attributed to Homer. We don't know if Homer actually wrote them, but that's the attribution. So we want to talk about that picture of Dionysus and his background, where he comes from, and certain important points. Uh, in particular, we want to talk about you know, not only his, it's something that we know of his origins and background in this context, but why we would talk about him in a podcast on the dark feminine. That's, that's the point that people may be wondering about. Um, there's, and there's, and of course, I want to also talk about the certain characteristics of Dionysus worship um, that I want to, that I'm going to get into in particular, uh, having to do with the, the concept of theos, which I'm going to talk about. And we're also going to talk about um, you know, the, the concept of the immortal soul, which, by the way, is not original to ancient Greece. I'm pretty sure I've said this uh, before. And we're also going to talk about his relationship to Apollo. Now, in the next podcast, that's going to sort of bridge us into the Orphic view of Dionysus, which is the other one that um, that I wanted to talk about. And so... Because the Orphic view is the one, and there's a completely different mythology. Not, I shouldn't say completely different, but his role is different. Uh, his parentage is different, and the the implication of his you know of his worship is also uh, not the same. So the Orphic so the Orphic view is going to be um, it, it's going to it, it probably is going to resemble more what you would tend to think of as. Um, something that, that resembles what we think of later as a Christianity or a Christian worship. And in fact, in the second part of this, we're also going to talk about, when I say part two, I mean the next podcast, not in this one. We are going to talk about uh, the connection between Dionysus and Jesus, because, surprise, surprise, Jesus actually has uh, a lot of the attributes of Dionysus. So let's, let's begin. Let's start by talking about who Dionysus is. Um, by the way, another I have a few sources for this. One is a book by Rosemary Taylor Perry called "The God Who Comes." Um, kind of a <laughs> kind of an oddly chosen name. Not sure if she thought of the connotation of that, or maybe she was. But it's called "The God Who Comes." Uh, the uh, let's see, what was it? The let me bring it up. Dionysus and Mysteries Reclaimed. Okay, I'm trying to remember the subtitle. I'm also going to be drawing from research that I've done on Dionysus. I wrote a chapter for a book called De Natura Fides, um, which has to do with the nature of religion and the nature of Fides having to do with fidelity. But this book has not, it's, it's supposed to come out in Palgrave Macmillan. Um, the editor is a friend of mine in India. I don't know um, when <laughs> I put my final drafts of this and I was told it's coming out imminently last year. So I don't know if COVID has, has screwed things up or what. But the book itself is not out yet. But I did write a chapter on Dionysus as a bridge figure between um, the the bridge figure between uh, what we think of as ancient religion and modern religion, and also about the changing nature of the afterlife. Uh, with Dionysus, this is the first time we have the idea of salvation of some kind, as well as a personal relationship with what we call God. Uh, 
So um, a lot of stuff to take in here. So, so let's just start at the beginning. Okay, so what is his main attribute? Dionysus is a god of wine, okay, which may surprise a lot of people. I mean, most people have heard of him, but it seems odd that a god who has to do with the vineyards and the wine would have such a central, um, that that would be, that, that he would turn out to be such a central figure, uh, pivotal figure in Western, well, well we're going to call Western religion. Uh, he is, his worship is extremely, extremely old. Um, he was worshipped in Minoan Crete at about 1650 BCE is the earliest. He is one of the deities mentioned in what are known as the Linear B tablets, um, which were, you know, which is basically, you know, one of the oldest forms of, um, well, it's Linear B. It's a language that predates Greek um, or anything in the Greek uh, peninsula there. And it's mainly been translated as kind of a laundry list of offerings for uh, different deities. This is the pl- first place we see Zeus, we see Hera, um, and uh, Athena. Dionysus is one of these very early um, deities mentioned here. And and again, he has that association with Zagreus, uh, and with, uh, to a certain degree, with hunting as well. Um, and even though we see um, goddesses of the hunt, like um, Diana slash Artemis in, in the ancient Greek, uh, Dionysus has his own connection with the wilds and with the forests. Um, in fact, probably, you know, the the um, the way that Dionysus is often portrayed, his particular followers are the people who the um, types of beings who congregate around him are the the uh, satyrs and the uh, you know who are the half goat half human types. They're they're very animalistic in their inflection, and of course the maenads who are these they're his female followers who are generally, um, they're, they're just portrayed as being sort of ecstatic and out of their minds a lot of the time. Um, they, they're very aggressive. They will aggressively attack people. They will take animals and tear them to shreds. Uh, there's, there's the, the maenads have a reputation for being very, very wild in their behavior. Okay. Um, now, his worship probably lasted until about the 5th century CE. So this was in the era of Christianity, had all you know? It was probably his worship died out as Christianity became the religion of the Roman Empire, because that happened in the late three hundreds. They said his worship probably died out sometime in the four hundreds. Um, although, again, to say that his worship totally died out, I don't think any of these particular deities and situations. I don't think they ever fully died out. Okay. Now, um, even though now the first evidence of Dionysus worship was probably on Minoan Crete. Okay. And if you're familiar with um, ancient Minoan civilization, you know, the temple at Knossos that um, appears in, you know, that, that is a great archaeological find. Um, and, and there's a lot actually on, on the temple of Knossos when it was originally uncovered. There's a lot of inaccurate information about, about what was found there because a lot of it was interpreted. This is early 1900s. A lot of, there's a lot of um, interpretation about what the um, statuary that was found there, the religious symbolism... Uh, never a good idea in archaeology to try to, or even anthropology, to try to make too many assumptions about what a lot of the symbols mean. Um, so that that is one of those areas that you may find um, a lot of mistakes. But I'm not, rather than sidetrack into that, it's just simply worth noting that this was a very old civilization. Uh, Minoan civilization predated um, Mycenaean civilization. You saw these different uh, groups of people with their art and their architecture and you know, whatever whatever the language was, whatever the writing was that one produced, they sort of rose and fall fell rose and fell um, at different points throughout the um, that particular area. Now, one of the interesting things about these ancient civilizations is how much are they connected to each other? Um, I, I've mentioned before a writer called Georgia Dumzil. Um, I think I'm saying is right. I don't know if it's Dumzil or Dumzil. I'm not. I'm sure if I'm saying it right. In any case, he's a linguist. And he talks a lot about the um, the Indo European what they call the Indo European connections between um, these uh, what we call Near Eastern civilizations and the Far East. And sort of in in line with thinking about that, there is the possibility that um, yeah, there there has been a relationship that's possibly created between Dionysus and Shiva, because there are actually a lot of similarities between the two of them. I just want to cite this this one right here. Um, 
Let me find it. And this is in uh, Taylor Perry's book. She mentions um, one scholar who suggests, well, several scholars that suggest the original Dionysian god form might have been the deity Shiva, whose religious relics have been found um, even among uh, pre-Harapan, pre-literate Indian cultures. Uh, several distinct aspects of Shiva do reflect Dionysus as the ancient Hellenes, meaning the ancient Greeks, knew him. For instance, Shiva Nataraja, the lord of the dance, who simultaneously creates and destroys. Uh, Shiva Ararani, which is lord in lady or the divine androgynous. And Shiva Linga, which is the lord of the phallus. Okay. So all of these are very similar in characteristic to Dionysus, as we are going to see. Um... So let's get back to some more basic facts about him, um, his origins. Now, even though we talk about the Crete, uh, there's also he's also been associated with the ancient city of Thebes, okay, which is where Oedipus um, was eventually was king, and Thrace, which is a region to the north of Greece, and now is really considered to be part of Greece, but at the time it was not. Um, in any of these cases. Um, Dionysus, or um, or his Roman counterpart Bacchus, was always viewed as a foreign god, a foreign god that was infiltrating from um, from some other place. Um, there is a statement. Um, if I look at this, um, where Dionysus was said to have traveled the entire world. Okay, uh, there are um, you know from Euripides Bacchae. Okay, the Bacchae from Bacchus is actually a play about Dionysus. Um, which actually tells one of the Homeric stories about him, and we're going to get into that. But um, but there's this idea of him as have as the the god who has traveled the world. Okay, now this is important to remember because the concept of the foreign in ancient religion. Now we this is where we can start to connect Dionysus with the underworld and the divine feminine. The idea of the foreign, um, you know, that has to do with othering, other with a capital O. And when we other, we, you know, what, what tends to happen is when you have very tribal cultures, the other is seen as a threat, okay? And there's different ways that cultures deal with it. Now, we could see it in the modern world in the way that people, you know, you, you can tell from people's attitudes towards immigration how they are towards the other. That's one, one sort of, um, maybe I shouldn't say sort of, it's one kind of, te- it's one test that you could have that deals with that, that point, you know, that, that could get, that can give you an idea because it also connects to how, how well people deal with what's new, what's diverse and what's changing. Some people don't deal well with those things. And those are the people who tend to want to keep the other out. Okay. Um, now the way the ancient Greeks handled it, as I've said before, is they handle it through the, they have the, um, uh, principle or the value of Xenia, X-E-N-I-A which is guest friendship or hospitality. So you welcome the foreigner and you shower them with gifts in the hope that when you yourself are a foreigner one day, uh, you will be treated similarly. But it also, like we've said about the pact, P-A-C-T, uh, the, it's, it's this idea that when, you, when you're dealing with something that's unknown or potentially fearful to you, uh, you, you treat it nicely in the hopes that you will not be harmed by this, um, by this outside force. So, uh, so Dionysus, in a lot of ways, becomes the exemplar of this, as we're going to see. Um, he deals with wine, okay? And in the Homeric view, he is the son of the goddess Semele. I'm sorry, <laughs> let me correct that right now. Semele's not a goddess. She's a mortal woman. She is a priestess, and um, she, and, you know, Zeus comes and visits her. In fact, I believe she's actually a priestess of Hera. And Zeus comes and visits her. He falls in love with her. He's fallen in love with just about everybody. Or maybe fall in love is not the right word. He's lusting after her. And he impregnates her. Now, um, Hera, Hera sees what's gone on because she tells people that she's become pregnant through Zeus. Now, obviously, if you're a priestess, especially if you've taken any kind of vows of chastity um, at all, then you, you know... Then you know, I think there's there's frequently the explanation of, oh, I was impregnated by a god. But let's not be so literal here. The idea is that supposedly she's she is really uh, impregnated by Zeus. But Hera appeals appears to her as an old woman, and she tells Hera, not knowing who Hera is, she tells her, you know, oh, I, I think this is what's happened. And Hera, of course, as we may you know, may see, is absolutely hates, um, 
she hates any any of her husband's partners. I mean, it doesn't matter whether they ended up having sex with her husband through any kind of choice or desire or not. Um, she always punishes the women. And in this case, what happens is she tells the old woman, the old woman says, oh, that was probably just some man who tricked you. You know how you need, you know how you can find out if this, um, if this, if this man is really Zeus, you know, next time he comes to you, you ask him, you ask him to show himself as a God because you don't really believe he's a God. You know, get, get him to prove it to you. You know, you don't, you don't want this, some, some, you know, some, uh, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? I'm not coming up with the right word, but you know, some some sort of trickster, some manipulative guy, like telling you that he's you know making himself look like this and he's actually not, you know, taking advantage of your innocence or whatever. So Semele, of course, is very concerned after this. So when she sees Zeus uh, next, she tells him, uh, you know, will you give me anything that I ask for? And Zeus says, well, of course, anything you want, I will grant you anything you want. She says, I want to see you as um as a god and zeus is very distressed by this because and hera knows this perfectly well if she sees zeus as a god uh she will burn up that is the one thing about the divine with the mortal you cannot look the divine in its original form in the face it's either going to drive you to madness or it's going to set you on fire that's pretty much what happens and it's not this isn't just exclusive to greek myth um you see elements of this Elsewhere, uh, you, you cannot look, you cannot, there, there's the expression, well, you cannot look in the face of God and live, um, because they will, you know, their, their divine presence can, can burn you up uh, if, you, if you see them. So, uh, so that's what happens. Semele is burned up at the sight of Zeus, because, of course, he's promised he's got to grant her the wish, because he, he swore he would do it, right? So what he does, though, is she has the child Dionysus. He, he manages to save the child and sew it up in his thigh. And so then the child is born. So now, technically speaking, this makes Dionysus a demigod. Okay? He's part god, and he's part uh, human. He has a human mother. Now, Semele um, is also the mother of, uh, of uh, Pentheus and Labdacus. Okay? Pentheus is the king who appears in Euripides' play, The Bacchae, okay? And uh, Labdacus is actually the father of Oedipus, okay? And actually, it's the father—actually, um, I'm sorry, Labdacus is the, is the grandfather, because his son is Laos, and then Laos' son is Oedipus, and Laos is the one that is murdered by Oedipus, okay? Father ki- uh, son killing the father. So there's a, there's a lot of intrigue among Semele's offspring, um, but the one thing that Pentheus does, that, and he's not the only one, um, Dionysus suffers from this wherever he goes, he is not accepted as a god. For one thing, he's a god of wine, and his followers are, you know, crazy, crazed, sexual, and orgiastic. Um, women and low-class people, people who are out, out, outcasts, are the ones who have to take the lead in Dionysian rituals, okay? This is not, if you belong to the elite civilized class, you, you are not, um, you're, you're a follower, not a leader in the Dionysus religion, okay? So it's, it's something that, that focuses on the, the downtrodden or the outcast or, or just those who don't have status in society. Um, one, of, one other name of Dionysus in Rome is Liber, okay, L-I-B-E-R, which we know is where the root of the word Liber from liberty or freedom, okay? So the idea is that the drinking of wine and the worship of Dionysus is freeing. You are actually set, you know, you're, you're set free from the, the confines of society and of social expectation, okay? So, um, so Dionysus is a very dangerous deity in many ways. And certainly there are um, efforts by both Greece, Greek and Roman, um, you know, authorities to contain that worship. They don't try to get rid of the worship. Only in Rome they do. In the year 186 uh, C, um, BC, or BCE as I like to say, um, there is an account in Livy's Annals of where the Roman Senate, uh, some woman comes and gives an account of how uh, you know one of the sons of the family or goes to you know has gone to be initiated into this Dionysus worship and, you know, they're tearing animals apart and they're having licentious sex. Like, she she lists all of these things that are considered to be violations and illegal in Roman thinking or in Roman practice. And, of course, the Senate is horrified and decides that they're going to ban 
uh, the the Bacchus cult from Rome, which they are not successful at, by the way. Uh, instant, interestingly, though, in the same <laughs> the same declaration of banishment, they also ban Jews and philosophers. Okay, now this if this sounds extremely weird. Um, because you don't know what they have in common. Later on, it'll become clear what what those groups actually do have in common. That's going to be more for part two. So what I would like to start with here is, um, let's see, is to talk about some of the myths of Dionysus. I have them in a couple different places. Um, One really good website that I want to tell you about if you're interested in Greek myth, Greek and Roman myth, is called theoi.com, T-H-E-O-I, theoi. Um, it's, it's a good site. It's legit. It's, uh, what they do is they'll tell you the myths of these, um, different deities. And in the myth, they will, um, they'll, they'll also give all the translations from the primary sources. So, you know, if you're studying mythology and your professor tells you, um, you need to return to the primary source, uh, you can go down, it'll give you the family tree and then they will, um, give you any major encyclopedia of myths, their, their definition, and also um, looking through this here. They also, yeah, I'm, I'm just scrolling down through this, but um, <clears throat> yeah. So you have it in, you know, they talk about the Dionysus myth in Apollodorus. They talk about it in, um, mainly in Pseudo-Apollodorus. And, you know, the Bibliotheca, so they go through all of these different narratives that um, that are about Dionysus. So we're not going to read all of these, but I want to start with the Homeric hymns, and this, these actually I have in book form. But um, you know, so let so let's hear what uh, what Homer, what or the you know allegedly Homer has to say about Dionysus. So first, the first hymn to Dionysus is about his birth. Um, some say it was at Draconon, some on windy Icaros. Some in Naxos, divine child, bull god. Okay, now here you see him associated with the bull. We'll see Dionysus is also associated with the serpent um, and with other animals as well. Others say it was beside the deep whirling waters of the river Alphios that Semele gave birth to you, pregnant from Zeus who loves thunder. Others, Lord, say you were born at Thebes. I say they lie. The father of men and gods gave birth to you, far from human beings, hiding you from white-armed Hera. There is a certain Nysa, a mountain peak flowering with forests, far off in Phoenicia near the streams of Egypt. No one comes there with his ship, none of the human beings with the power of speech. For it has no harbor, no place to anchor for the swaying ships, but sheer cliff circles it, very high on every side, and it grows many lovely, desirable things. And they will set up many statues in the temples, as these things are three. So every three years forever shall mortals sacrifice to you, perfect hecatombs at your festivals. The son of Kronos spoke and nodded with his dark brows. So the idea is that Zeus is the one declaring that this is how they will worship Dionysus. And the heavenly hair of the Lord flowed down from the immortal head and made great Olympus tremble. When Zeus had spoken and not, why Zeus had spoken and nodded his head. Be gracious, you woman-maddening bull god. We, the poets, beginning and ending, we sing of you. Anyone who forgets you cannot remember sacred song. I greet you, Dionysus, God who appears as a bull, you and your mother Semele, whom they call Thione. Okay. So that is the first Homeric hymn. They're not very long. So I will read the second one. Because Homer lists has three. There's three that that we know of. Okay. So here's this next hymn. Um... Dionysus, I will call to mind, son of glorious Semele, how he appeared on a shore of the desolate sea, there where the cliffs jut out, looking like the young man in the flower of youth. Rich dark hair flowed round him, and a purple robe hung down from his strong shoulders. Suddenly there were pirates, Tyrrhenians. They raced across the wine-dark sea, rowing their ship with many oars. A destiny of doom drove them. When they saw him, they nodded to each other, and instantly they leapt out and caught him and shoved him into their ship. Thrilled and elated, imagining him the son of those kings God loved. So he comes across as somebody very wealthy. With harsh ropes, they wanted to hold him down, but the ropes would not hold. The willow bonds just dropped off him, fell far away from his hands and feet. He sat there, his dark eyes smiled. Then the helmsman knew, at once he cried out to his comrades, Madmen, who is this God you have seized and bound? He is so strong. Not even our well-built ship can carry him. 
either this is Zeus or silver-bowed Apollo or else it is Poseidon. Now, it's interesting, by the way, that Apollo is mentioned here, but we'll talk about that. He has not the look of a mortal man. He is like the gods who live on Olympus. Come, let us set him free straight away on this dark shore. Don't lay hands on him, lest he fly into a rage and rouse up terrible winds and huge storms. He said this, but the master reproved him with these hateful words. Madman yourself, watch the wind, haul the sail, hold fast to all the ship's ropes. As for him, we men will deal with him. I expect he's headed for Egypt or Cyprus or the Hyperboreans, or even farther away, but in the end he'll tell us all about his friends and his possessions and brothers. Some gods sent him to us. He said this, and he set the ship's mast in the sail, and the wind swelled. In... To the middle of the sail on either side, the crew stretched the ropes tight. Suddenly, wonderful things appeared among them. First of all, wine burst out bubbling. Sweet, fragrant wine streamed all over the swift ship, and a heavenly smell floated up. When they saw it, all the sailors were amazed. Suddenly, a vine sprang up to the sail to the top, spreading out both ways, and grapes hung down in clusters all over it, and a dark ivy curled around the mast, blossoming with flowers and sprouting lovely berries. And suddenly, all the rowlocks grew garlands. When they saw this at last, they cried to the helmsman to take the ship into land. But then the god turned into a lion, inside the ship, terrible on the highest part, and roared loudly. And amidst, and amidships he made a bear with a shaggy neck, revealing his portents. And it stood up threateningly, and on the top deck the lion glared furiously. Everyone was terrified. They ran to the stern in a panic, huddled round the helmsman, the man with the wise soul. But the lion suddenly sprang and seized the master. When they saw it, they all longed to escape such a dreadful doom. They all leapt overboard together into the brilliant sea and became dolphins. But the helmsman was saved. The god had mercy on him and made him truly happy. He said to him, Courage, my godlike friend. You have charmed my heart. I am Dionysus, the roaring god. My mother was Semele, daughter of Cadmus, and she bore me after she lay in love with Zeus. Farewell, child of Semele with the beautiful face. Anyone who forgets you forgets how to compose sweet song. Okay, so here we see also this association of Dionysus with um, with creativity, with the arts. Um, and we, Nietzsche actually talks about this in his uh, juxtaposition of Dionysus and Apollo. Uh, but again, I'm going to save that for a little bit later. Now, so the last hymn to Dionysus that Homer has uh, is uh, hymn number 26. Ivy-haired, loud-roaring Dionysus. I begin to sing the brilliant son of Zeus and glorious Semele. The nymphs with their lovely hair took him from his father, the Lord, and held him to their breasts and nourished him tenderly in the valleys of Nysa. The cave smelt sweet where he grew by the grace of his father to be counted among the immortals. But when the goddess has finished caring for him, this god who has him sung to him everywhere, then he started ceaselessly wandering, roaming all over the woods and valleys, ivy wreaths and laurel twining thickly round him, nymphs following wherever he went. He was their leader till noise possessed the whole unspeakably vast forest. And so farewell to you, Dionysus, with your ripe clustering grapes. Grant us to come back again joyously at this season, and for many this season onwards for many to come. Okay. So we see his connection here to wine. We see that is the particular episode dealing with the pirates. And again, there's a case of they don't. The helmsman recognizes him as a god. The others do not. He is rewarded and the others are punished. There's a similar story about a group of women who on the festival of Dionysus felt that his worship was too, um, you know, was uncivilized. So they refused. They sang hymns to Athena instead. And he turned all of them into bats. That's, that's a story told by Ovid. So that is, uh, you know, and in that case, I'm sorry, it would be Minerva rather than Athena if it's Ovid. But it's, yeah, but that is, so there's, so it's not good to cross Dionysus. He has to be shown his worship. And there's there's definitely a um, there's something to be there's a deeper meaning there for sure. Um, it's not just a matter there's there's definitely a sense that when when you do things like drink wine, when you engage in dancing and celebrating, um, there's, there's a term associated with Dionysus orgazine, which is also the origin of the term you know for orgy. Um, so. And he's often associated with orgies and, you know, these, these licentious sex acts. But really there, it's more this idea of celebrating, okay? It's the idea that life is to be celebrated and to be loved. You know, you are, he is the god, he is a god associated with nature, a god associated with 
the celebration of life. So, um, you know, which, again, we think about our day-to-day lives, you know, oh, we have to go to work, there's certain things we have to do, what we like to call adulting, you know, there's certain things that um, we do every day. But, you know, it's, but, you know, there, there's got to be a time for that. And certainly in, in many of these cultures, what you're seeing is a, is a pushback against this kind of, which you might think of as a chaotic energy, okay? Everything is so nice and orderly, but now you have this god who's a kind of trickster figure. He's, he, you know, he, he changes shape. He's, um, you know, is he a god? Is he a human? So there's a liminal characteristic to him as well. You know, he's on the boundary between these things. And he's associated with wine, which wine, as we know, you know, in vino veritas, right? In, in wine, there is truth. That's when you, you know, that's when you let down your guard and the persona and the, the nice image you want to present to people. And you either become very silly, you could become very angry. Lots of things happen when you drink, okay? It all depends on your disposition when you're, when you're drunk. But, the, but the, for the Dionysus followers... Drinking wine and becoming intoxicated was to be possessed by the god himself. So this is the first example of where we see the direct experience of God. When you talk about the other um, ancient Greek gods, even if you talk about the Hindu gods, the Egyptian gods, they're not gods that are directly experienced. You don't have a personal relationship with these gods. Um, I talk a little bit about this in my chapter um, and I just want to go back and look at that. Um, I'm just going to quote from my own book here for right now. As I mentioned here, okay. So, yeah, as god of wine, he's associated with drunkenness, orgies, sometimes violent festivities. But at the same time, he's viewed as a savior figure, and he's central to the Greek mystery cults, which we're going to talk about next time. In order to understand him, it's important to understand the ancient Greek religious attitude In our modern Western conceptions of religion, we think of one God who is good and just. And weirdly enough, um, I'm just going to say as an aside here, uh, it it was Dionysus worship that kind of led, was part of what led us to that. But again, I I don't want to jump ahead. Um, And of course, we think of God as conquering evil and death, especially if you take a Christian view. In our modern Western conceptions of religion, okay, wait, said that, death may be a time of judgment with rewards for the righteous and punishment for the wicked. This was not so for ancient Greeks, or at least it was not conceived in the same way. Gods were neither good nor evil. They were bound by the rulings of fate, but could otherwise be capricious. Humans made sacrifices to the gods to gain their favor or to appease. That's that Xenia idea. Um, and uh, they learned the will of the gods through oracles and seers and natural events were communications with the gods. They reflected the realities of the world, um, at least in some part, their unpredictable natural and psychological forces. And the best you could do was try to live your life in accordance with their will. Okay, And so thus we look at these gods that have very contradictory natures. So again, you have this god of sort of chaotic uh, wine god about, you know, partying, celebrating, um, you know, raising up the lower classes. Uh, you know, there's, you know, you, you could, from the point of view of order versus chaos, people could tend to view that very negatively. And in fact, by the time we get to the Christian era, we start to have, when we start to put these concepts of good versus evil into play with terms of, you know, being quote unquote sinful or, you know, obedient to God or whatever, you know, obedience, order, submission, you know, you know, sober behavior, thoughtfulness. These are all the things that we value. And we treat these other things like, you know, letting our hair down, partying, enjoying things, drinking, you know, having sex. All of these things are assumed to be, you know, sinful, right? And as we notice, he is a god of wine. So he is associated with agriculture, with the vine, and thus, in this case, with the earth mother, okay? He is uh, complementary to a goddess like Demeter, who is the, uh, it was a goddess of wine, um, sorry, of the earth, and she is the one who has taught agriculture. She had more to do with the grains, and he had more to do with the vine. Um, yeah, I was going to say something about um, this uh, personal experience of God. Uh, this is from Carl Jung's answer to Job, uh, and I'm going to quote it here directly. The essential difference between Yahweh and the all-ruling father Zeus, who in a benevolent and somewhat detached manner allowed the economy of the universe to roll along on its accustomed course and punished only those who were disorderly. So there's, there's the key. 
gods like Zeus and the other Olympians, generally speaking, are detached. They're not, they're not involved in human affairs. They're transcendent. Okay? They're not... And really, Yahweh is too, but, um, but we'll talk about this. Um, Zeus did not moralize, but ruled purely instinctively. He did not man- demand anything more from human beings than the sacrifices due to him. He did not want to do anything with human beings because he had no plans for them. Father Zeus is certainly a figure, but not a personality. Yahweh, on the other hand, was interested in man. Human beings were a matter of first-rate importance to him. He needed them as, he needed them as they needed him urgently and personally. Okay, so when you time you get to uh, Judaic religion, there's a personal relationship to the God, okay? Now, Dionysus is probably the only example in that detached Greek religion of a personal relationship to Dionysus. He is part human. He has to do with wine. You can be directly possessed by him by taking of the fruit of the vine, okay? And this, this concept is known as theos, T-H-E-O-S, T-H-E-O-S, and theos is the word that we now use when we refer to God or to our relationship with God. Theological, for example, um, it's it's the idea. It's the it's the Greek root word for it, and, ha- and it's actually akin to the term for ecstasy. Okay, so this is about ecstatic experience. It's about um, you know the mystic's experience versus you know the sober you know the person who goes to just goes to church every Sunday, but um, it's more about obeying the rules of the priests rather than trying to experience the God for yourself. So this gives Dionysus a kind of mystical aspect. It, it brings you into those mysteries um, that the immortals know. Okay. So I say here, if you can rely on this distinction, the direct possession of the worshiper to the god in Dionysian rites by drinking wine may be the first kind of personal relationship to god. There's initiatory character in the Dionysian rituals that involves the madness of the god, allowing the madness of the god to be expressed in the believer. Because that is another characteristic of Dionysus. It is said that Hera had driven him mad, and that this is why he roamed the world in this kind of crazed state. Okay. And um, so, you know, we're going to find that he's, um, you know, that, that this, this sort of mad, chaotic god associated with intoxication and this kind of freedom of behavior uh, is not... Um, you know, it's it, it seems like it's a real paradox. Okay, so let me talking about a little bit about the paradox here. I mentioned um, again in my chapter, Dionysus' two half brothers are Pentheus and Labdacus. Okay, Pentheus, the Theban king, and the Bacchae, Labdacus, father of Laius and grandfather of Oedipus. Okay, what both half brothers have in common is their rejection of Dionysus' status as a god with fatal results, okay? Pentheus is actually torn apart by his, um, by his own mother in the, in the rituals, in, in Euripides' Bacchae, because she thinks she's attacking a wild beast, but it's, it's actually her son, who, by the way, who's been dressed up as a woman, because there's this very androgynous nature to Dionysus, which is also part of his connection to the feminine. Um, whether Dionysus has origins in Crete or Thrace, he is still portrayed as a god coming into Greece, an outsider. Okay, um, It's not his semi-divine genealogy that makes them question his divinity. It's his quality of attribution. Wine causes drunkenness. Dionysus' rites were wild, drunken, and orgiastic. Uh, lowest classes were raised up, and it's not difficult to see why disorderly nature was viewed as a threat. His chaotic foreign nature was respected, but Greek society had been less tribal, became less tribal, and was more urban, and there was a need to tame those disorderly characteristics. Now, how did they do this? Well, in Dionysian worship, this is the origin of Greek comedy and tragedy. This is where you originally get theater from, because the um, because now you know now plays were put on in honor of the festival of Dionysus, and in these plays, I remember uniquely. In Athens in particular, when they had the, the yearly uh, festivals of Dionysus, first of all, you would have playwrights who would compete, okay, to write the best, you know, to win a competition for the best play, you know, best tragedy, best comedy. And, of course, people dressed up. So, in other words, there's, there's that liminality. You put on a persona. You become a different person when you get on stage and you're in theater. And in, in those were the only theater productions in Athens, okay, because normally, again, there's a lot that was reserved for Athenian citizens, okay? You had to be a citizen of Athens, and if you were a slave, a woman, or a foreigner, 
uh, you did not have the same rights as you know other Athenian citizens. Um, however, foreigners and slaves were both permitted to uh, perform in these plays during the Dionysian rituals. It was also permissible to be critical or poke fun at whoever the, the ruler was of Athens at that time. Whoever the king was or whoever, you know, was the head of the, you know, whatever sort of, you know, whoever the ruling class was of society, it was permissible to, um, to, to make fun of them and to, and, and to openly, to openly mock them. Okay. Because there's this, um, there's this need to, um, we see it in, in other religions. You see it, for example, in the god Loki in the Norse, um, who, who frequently um, mocks and angers the gods. You have it in the, um, the Hayoka of the, of the Native Americans, the mocking shadow of the creator god. Um, the, you know, this idea of, the, of, of this kind of um, trickster god who just basically stand, you know, um, mocks the seriousness and authority of the other one, making fun of them. Um, which is something you might do when you're drunk too. You know, you, you might, you might be less inclined to show that, that level of respect. Um, so there's a respect here for disrespect as it were. Um, and unfortunately that was taken out of religion. That had been part of religion for years. Even when, even in the Christian era, when you got up to the time of the, the medieval time, the medieval carnivals and so forth were also very much in this same spirit and, they were mocking of church authorities. You know, you'd either get a donkey or you'd get a small child and they'd make them into pope. Um, and, you know, like they declared them pope for a day or, or whatever. And and this, you know, the, the, and, and again, there was this drunken revelry, which the church eventually said, no, no, you need to celebrate feast days and things, you know, with, with sober reflection and prayer. And Carl Jung's comment on this was, you know, that they by doing that, they threw the gates to hell wide open. Now, interesting thought, right? But it makes sense because... You know, you the, this is to, to try to get rid of that disorderly part is to deny an entire part of human nature. It's to try to say that these um, that these impulses are not there, or that somehow they have to be eradicated or got ri- gotten rid of because they're they're corrupt or they're wrong. Um, and this goes back to the kind of biblical idea that nature is corrupt, that humans are corrupt. We are also going to see where that originates in you know the other story of Dionysus, which again, next, next, um, podcast, I'll talk about that. But there's, you know, there, there's this idea that, you know, there's a side of your nature that you need to cultivate and you you should either be ashamed of, you should suppress or get rid of the other part. And the Dionysus rituals were a way for these civilized societies to express that part um, and, you know, sometimes the authorities had control and sometimes they didn't, but they never had really tried to stop it until you got to the influence of the church in the Middle Ages. And um, I would argue that that was absolutely the wrong move. You need that outlet. You need to have validation of that part of you, because otherwise that part of you, in Jungian thinking, then that part of you takes over, Okay. It's unconscious now. Now you are you are the good moral person. I, I don't do these things. You over there, you do these things. But I don't do these things. And the fact remains that a lot of times, you will see this a lot in evangelical communities where they will, for example, um, rail against homosexuality and then you find out they're participating in gay orgies. You know, things like that. You know, and again, not, not saying there's anything wrong with homosexuality or gay orgies, but if, they, if they're taking the attitude that that's sinful— they're actually participating in it, but now they're trying to just hide the fact that they participate in it. So they become a hypocrite. They, um, and sometimes they do even worse things. Sometimes they actually like rape young children and do other things because they are, um, because they have pushed it so far back and decided that they are such a, you know, rationalized that they are such a good upstanding and non-sinful person and Jesus loves them or whatever. Um, and then they, but then, you know, that other part of them ends up taking over and their actions end up um, precluding that. I mean, it's, it, it, you know, they, they end up doing things that are much more horrible than the person who, you know, maybe they're not necessarily accepting of that part of them that, you know, of, um, different, uh, you know, whatever thoughts and feelings are not to deem to be, um, socially proper in, in that particular context. Um, but, you know, they, you know, so so but so they end up acting out in ways that are actually very harmful to other people because they can't they don't they don't they're they're not properly acknowledging it, validating it, and giving it an outlet. Okay. 
And people are far more complex than this division of, you know, of, of good and bad traits. And so that also ties in with the theme that, um, that I like to talk about in this podcast, which is, um, you know, you, you don't want to take this idea that, um, you know, that, you know, there, there should not be this split down the middle. You know, you have different aspects to yourself. They flow into each other. They're in, they should be integrated with each other, not um, one pushed away over to the side and the other one, um, you know, cultivated because people tell you that that's what you should be. Okay. All right. So we're talking about these paradoxes. Now, let's let's talk specifically about why Dionysus um, <laughs> belongs on a feminine podcast. Well, we've talked about some of it. We've talked a little bit about... Um, his connection to, um, first of all, his androgynous connection, his connection to agriculture and the Earth Mothers. In fact, Rosemary Taylor Perry does make a um, a very specific statement about that. Uh, let me find it. Yeah, she says in her book, um, and she says in the section called "The Dionysian Archetype Over Time," and it's on page twelve of that book, um, which is also published, by the way, by Algora Publishing, the same one that publishes my book, uh, "Death and the Maiden." Uh, she says the she says I conjecture that the worship of the God who has been named so many things by so many people is the oldest and most continuous form of worship in the world, aside from the worship of the Great Mother, to which it is complementary. Okay, so um, she points out the fact that he doesn't spring from a Zoroastrian type duality of good and evil, good God opposed by evil. Um, she mentions, uh, she says, the Dionysian god form uh, appears to be paradoxical. Uh, she says they're presented in literal animistic terms, for example, being washed in the blood of the lamb. Oh, hey, where else have you heard that? Okay, but that is a Dionysian god form. But they are generally experienced by humans as part of the self, making them concurrently anthropomorphic. Lord of plants and animals, yet innately more than either. Such a god is also the reaper and the hunting animal master, the hunter of humankind. So there's that creative and destructive element. So that's how we see the um, connection to uh, Shiva there as well. Um, Dionysus is anciently known to be fierce and merciless protector of that which merits mercy. The unborn, the possible, the serendipitous, any helpless, voiceless being. And that leads into the other idea. Most mythologies of Dionysus, now you would think there's a god associated with, you know, licentious sex and orgies and so forth, which, again, this particular author disputes that that's entirely what he, you know, that that was really the focus of what he was about. But he's, um, frequently you will see in certain stories, uh, the first one that comes to mind is that of Theseus and Ariadne. Uh, Theseus is the one who defeats the Minotaur. Um, they, there is a group of, um, uh, the, when the Olympic Games were played between Crete and Athens, um, one of the, um, the Athenian athletes, mur- you know, killed one of the uh, Cretan athletes, and the king of Athens at the time had said that um, he, you know, he's, you know, if one Athenian is guilty, we're all guilty. So what they did, the um, on Crete there was a monster known as the Minotaur. Now you can go look up the the story of the Minotaur. It might I might have to cover it at some point because it's it's rather interesting. Um, it has to do with a, a a curse of Poseidon, but you know on on the um, wife of King Minos. But so you have this half bull, half human creature that's placed at the center of this labyrinth that's built by the architect Daedalus. And what they do is send a tribute of 10 Athenian young people every year to be devoured by the Minotaur. Okay, well, not every year. I don't think it was every year. I'm forgetting how many, what the, what the um, uh, I don't know if it was, I can't remember if it was every 10 years. But there, there, was, a, there was a regular tribute that had to be paid. Um, and Theseus, who was the, the prince, he actually went on one of these. Um, but his, his goal was actually to slay the Minotaur. And he does so with the help of Ariadne, who is the daughter of King Minos. Uh, she gives him the thread uh, that he uses to uh, find his way to the center of the maze. And he, she, of course, is in love with Theseus, and she wants to marry him. And he actually intends to take her away with him. But then um, uh, Athena appears to him and tells him that he, no, he has to leave. He has to leave her. He has to go. And so he takes off and leaves her on the shore in the middle of the night. 
and she's devastated when she wakes up. You know, here she is. She's probably, you know, made love to him and everything. So this puts her in a, in a difficult social position because, you know, there's, you know, there's this idea that she's done that because they are to be married. And then, of course, they're not. Um, and Dionysus supposedly um, comes along and, and marries her to sort of rescue her virtue. There's also stories of Dionysus rescuing women from rape. So he is a god who actually is very supportive of women and femininity. And again, he's considered to be a very androgynous god himself. Um, women are very attracted to him because he has a very feminine look to him, but it's a, he's a male god. So he is a god who is on the boundaries that connects him to the underworld, that connects him to the earth mother, connects him to all of these things. Now, she says specifically about the Dionysian god form, uh, this again, Rosemary Taylor Perry, God forms of this type are often portrayed as adherents or defenders of the divine feminine and can be found in the company of female worshippers, goddesses, or their own mates, without whom they are incomplete and upon which they rely in order to fulfill their multiple roles of divine child, bridegroom, father, savior, or reborn one, and or reborn one. Sensuality, too, is a Dionysian trademark. Usually a paradoxical sensuality, at once childlike and ravaging, remarkably androgynous, yet undeniably masculine in its expression. So Dionysus represents that synthesis of the masculine and feminine, okay? And the synthesis of, um, you know, there, there's a freedom, there's a liberation there, uh, where one is, not, uh, one is not split apart. One is not expected to be in a particular role. So... Um, yeah, so we definitely see uh, this connection here. Uh, the third particular connection that I have here is the connection to the idea of the immortal soul, which we're going to talk a little bit more about in the next episode. But the idea that you, you know, because initially, again, the, the Greek idea of the afterlife, and I say again because I say this pretty much in every podcast, but the ancient idea is that, you know, death is, is the great equalizer. It doesn't matter who you were in life, everybody just goes to the same place. Um, there later became the idea of the Elysian Fields, which, by the way, is not the same as having immortal life. It's just that you're dead and what's left of your soul now gets to go to a nice, happy place instead of a gloomy one. But it's not that being in the gloomy place means you're being punished. The only people who were being punished were the ones who were in the depths of Tartarus, where they were actually tortured. And those were the ones who really ticked off the gods big time. So uh, that was not a common thing um, in, in ancient religion. You know, you did not, there wasn't this idea of immortality after death. Um, and if you want some, some evidence of that, look at the Odyssey's um, book on the Nikia. I want to say, is that chapter, it's chapter 11, chapter 11 of the Odyssey, uh, where Odysseus um, descends to the underworld to talk to Tiresias um, along with Kirke. And I do talk about that in the Kirke podcast as well, so you can always check that out. Um... So, yeah, so what happens is, and then we're going to find out in the Orphic myth uh, that Dionysus also has a lot to do with the immortal soul, um, you know, because he's, again, he's connected with these mystery cults who learn to not fear death because they, they can, they now have control of the afterlife. They, they have the secret password or whatever that will make them be able to go into the better part of the underworld. And this later... Um, as, as the whole idea of the underworld shifts under the Neoplatonists and even the Middle Platonists, um, just like with Hecate, where everybody gets moved up to the sky, um, now, now you're starting to have a whole different idea of the, of the afterlife, where you have the moon as kind of an intermediary space and the sun sort of being where the gods are, um, and then you have, uh, you know, so you, so you have this very, now the underworld is moved to the sky. So now you have this, this cosmical underworld, and it, and it ends up taking um, a much more rationalistic turn. It becomes more about judgment after death, even though you do see that idea appear among the philosophers like Plato beforehand. Um, it's, you know, now, now, we're, now we're looking at this different conception of the underworld. We, we're flipping people around, flipping their roles around. And... You know, it's it's kind of in this this um, this context that uh, Dionysus and be, ends up becoming a kind of bridge figure. Um, okay, the last thing I just want to cover in this particular podcast, and again, I'm going to cover the rest of it next time um, in a part two, um, is the idea of Dionysus and his connection to Apollo. Okay, so 
I'm going to um, open up my own chapter on this because I, I cover this pretty thoroughly. So Apollo, of course, uh, now Helios is the is sort of the original Titan god associated with the sun. It's a chariot of Helios that that rides across the sky. But Apollo also he became as 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 the cult of the Olympians took over in Greece. Apollo began to you know he he was considered he he's sort of the in a lot of ways he seems to be the reverse of Dionysus. He has to do with order, civilization, poetry. Although again they talk about the idea of Dionysus as a muse, so there is a commonality there. But now we kind of get into the Nietzschean idea of the Apollonian versus the Dionysian, and. I'm going to talk, let me just, let me just read to you what I have here, because I think that's um, going to be far more organized. Okay. So I say here, why the Dionysus worshiper was possessed by drinking wine, the Pythia. Apollo's visionary priestess, who gave oracles from the god to seekers, was also subject to a kind of possession. Uh, Dodds, that's E.R. Dodds, who wrote The Greeks and the Irrational, uh, compares the Pythia's stomach breathing to that of mediums of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Seers and poets were possessed by gods who gave them oracles, or by the muses who inspired both poetry and memory. While Apollo and the muses could be directly experienced by these select people, anyone could directly experience Dionysus. Walter Burkert noted the antithesis between Dionysus and Apollo, uh, used by Nietzsche in, in, as the essence of Greek history and art. And as to quote him, there, Apollo and Dionysus are not only brothers, but they also always have other gods besides them. Nevertheless, the two were often set in relation to each other. Several black figure vases place Apollo on one side and Dionysus on the other. Um, and um, William Guthrie tells us that when the mythical Orpheus follows Dionysus, he's enraged at the singer's connection to Apollo and has him torn apart. So that's another story of Orpheus, the, um, the, the um, very talented musician who is mainly known for going to the underworld to rescue his wife, but he ends up failing. I mean, he, he does get Hades and Persephone to release um, Eurydice, his um, his beloved who dies too young, but then he makes the mistake of turning around and she's lost forever. So, uh, but Orpheus is also associated with um, the Orphic hymns, with the or you know with the Orphic mysteries of both uh, of Dionysus in particular, and he is supposed to be the founder of the mysteries of Dionysus. But um, that's that again we'll save for next time. Um, so thus, Orpheus himself has both an Apollonian and Dionysian connection. Uh, Guthrie theorizes any human who may have been the basis for Orpheus might have been a priest of Apollo. Um, later, when taking mystical initiation in the Dionysus cult, he may have reformed it to make it more Apollonian in nature. Yeah, and that's, that's part of the bridging there. Um, okay. In addition, both were associated with the sun. Olympiodorus speaks of Helios who, according to Orpheus, had much in common with Dionysus through the medium of Apollo. And according to Proclus, Orpheus makes Helios very much the same as Apollo and worships the fellowship of these gods. Uh, in the Odes of Horus, which were published very much very close to the end, beginning of um, early Roman Empire, 23 BCE, there's a hymn to Bacchus that mixes Bacchus and Apollo very clearly, where Bacchus in some points is referred to as Apollo. And it makes sense that Dionysus would be associated with the sun, because um, in Orphism he will be considered the successor, successor to Zeus, um, who increasingly becomes associated with the good and the light in an almost monotheistic sense. So, a little teaser there for the next, um, next episode. Um, okay, the Platonists and their successors recast the sun as the place of salvation when the underworld was moved to the sky in their celestial vision, and astrology became the means of knowing the will of the gods. In the Roman Empire period, Mithras as Sol Invictus was a rival to the new cult of Christianity, and the Emperor Aurelian took, the, took on the title of Sol Invictus, okay? So that's the invincible sun, Sol, the unconquerable sun, and he encouraged worship of the sun god, okay? And at this point, you start to see where there becomes an overlap between Christianity and sun god worship. But, um, but Dionysus ends up <clears throat> having this association with Apollo, First, again, set in relation to him, but, you know, but then he starts to take on his characteristics. Okay. When Dionysus is recast in the light of the sun god, his chthonic, earthy, and foreign other tendencies diminish in the public sphere. Um, and this may be the reason that E.R. Dodds um, observes about the change in the function of Dionysian ritual, because um, it, it does, uh, because the nature of Dionysus worship does change. And in any event, it's curious to observe how Dionysus' worship in the public spheres became less about frenzied rites 
and more about catharsis through another medium, the theater. Um, official Dionysian rites in Athens were centered around dramatic contests. Um, okay, so I just want to see if I have anything else in here. There's some things in here that I would rather save for the next episode. But, um, but as we see here, when you start when you start to see these these kinds of, of crossovers later on you also see crossovers in the Roman Empire between um, de- um, deities like Sabazios for example and um, and uh, Jove or Jupiter in the, in the Roman and then they start becoming conflated with um, with Yahweh they become you know in Sabazius Sabazius by the way is also considered to be sort of another form of Dionysus so. Um, you have this period of the Roman Empire right around that time, um, early Roman Empire, first first Emperor Augustus, and into the what we think now of as the early Christian era, which, you know, you, you had the Christian persecutions and so forth, you know, through the 100s and, and, and the 200s, and then um, Charlemagne eventually, no, I'm sorry, it was Constantine, not Charlemagne, who um, declares it the religion of the Roman Empire, um, but it's at, that's around the 380s. So it's much later. And in that period of time, uh, there's what they call a great syncretism. Anyone familiar with the Greek magical papyri um, sees how you have this combination of um, Persian, Egyptian, Greek, Roman, and and probably a myriad of other cultures where gods are interchanged and, you know, um, and, and, you know, used their, you know, their, um, their function and their uh, you know, their their associations are overlapped in these kind of magical texts that they use, these kinds of spells and things that they would cast in the names of these gods. And, you know, and, and again, that's a period of, you know, syncretism is when you, you are in a place that is more diverse, when you're in a place that is, um, you know, when you're in an urban center, where you have people coming from different places. It's not like these little rural communities where everybody knows each other and, you know, which is much more tribal in its, in its way. The more uh, diversity you have, the more you're exposed to new ideas. Okay. So in this exposure to these new ideas, people start taking the ideas of their new neighbors and so forth. And they, um, and, and, and then religions start getting kind of mixed together. Ideas that are found to be in common or perceived to be in common between them um, end up, you know, making these new versions of these religious groups that, um, you know, for example, ancient worship of Kibbele or ancient worship of uh, like the Mithras cult, which came, also came from the Persian um, regions, the Macedonian Empire, and came into Rome. <clears throat> as all of these, um, as Rome's empire grew, they had a variety of people with a variety of beliefs, which is why eventually you got to a point where they said, well, as long as you worship the emperor, worship whatever else you want. Because it, you know, because the idea was that all these different groups were coming together and they were sort of like mixing and matching and becoming new versions of those religions or new religions entirely in that environment. So it is in this environment that Dionysus Bacchus ends up being uh, subsumed into some of these other cults, including the um, the Christian cult of Jesus. Uh, so we will, you know, but again, and is eventually lost as that particular side of things becomes deemed evil and sinful. So I'm going to stop here for now because there is there is a lot more, but uh, I want to really move into the Apollo thing was sort of an, an introduction. I should mention one other thing. Uh, Dionysus is... Uh, what happens, it's sort of at the end of his saga, what he does, his mother Semele, who of course has died, he actually goes down to the underworld to retrieve her and to bring her up to Mount Olympus, okay? So he actually, you know, in in being accepted as a god, he enters the realm of these civilized gods. And being there can only be 12, um, Hestia, the goddess of the hearth, uh, who does not like all of the drama of the the other Olympian gods, says, you know what, I'm going to go live on earth. You can take my place. So Dionysus at this point becomes an Olympian god. And his mother Semele uh, is, in, is in Mount Olympus with him. So there's a definite, um, 
A definite symbolism there of this sort of chaotic, frenzied god associated with the Chthonic realm, with the underworld, with um, with these Earth Mother kinds of rites, which, as we've noted before, are often can be very violent, can be very terrifying. Um, you know, uh, the idea of you know animal sacrifice, human sacrifice, all of these things. I don't think I don't know that human sacrifice was particularly associated with Dionysus, but but you know these kind of frenzied rites, and now he's taking his place among the civilized gods. And there is a, there is a great um, psychologically that that does something when the gods associated with that part of the unconsciousness all of a sudden become part of the 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 rational accepted mainstream world. And when they do, their nature changes. They, they there's something that is in, that is forever changed and lost there. So we're going to talk about that in the next episode. Um, I want to thank you for listening. Um, if you want to support my work, uh, patreon.com slash Chthonia. Um, thank you to my uh, new subscribers. I have a few new subscribers this month, so um, very glad to have you. And thank you so much to those who are still have still been um, following me for, you know, more recently or even for um, a couple of years now. Um, and please visit my work at Chthonia.net. And uh, visit me on social media at Chthonia Podcast on uh, Facebook, two words. Um, one word on Twitter and one word on Instagram, Chthonia Podcast, and just plain Chthonia if you're watching me on YouTube. Uh, thanks again, and until the next episode. Mm-hmm.